Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is UXK. 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 I'm your host, Lee Allen Arredondo. Hello and welcome to UX Cake. In this episode, I am talking with the renowned brand strategist, Marty Neumeyer, about a strategy framework that he calls Agile Strategy. Marty's written many strategy books, design strategy, brand strategy, business strategy, and his most recent book, Scramble, has a very unique approach to the business book genre. It's set as a novel. Marty calls it a business thriller. And I haven't read any other business book like it. Honestly, I was able to read this from cover to cover and stay engaged the entire time. So not your typical business book. In this episode, Marty talks about why agile strategy is more likely to create innovation and bold change than the more linear top-down strategy that most businesses employ. And also, what are some things to keep in mind if you want your brilliant strategy to see the light of day? And we talked about what anyone from business executives to design leaders to individual contributors, how we all can use this framework for more effective outcomes. Marty is a keynote speaker at Interaction 19, which is coming up this week in Seattle. You can learn more about that at interaction19.ixda.org. Thank you so much, Marty, for joining me on UX Cake today. I'm really excited to talk with you. Thank you, Lee. We're going to be talking about Agile Strategy. You have this really fantastic book that has come out recently called Scramble. It's also one of the most interesting business books I've ever read, which definitely we'll get to that. But first, I wanted to start with why. Why Agile Strategy? What led to the development of a new strategy process? Because to your point, I think there are a lot of strategy business books out there? Uh, There are a ton of strategy business books, and typically they offer a process or a methodology that's fairly linear, and it's top-down. So you get a bunch of leaders together, and they decide what the company needs, where they have to head, then they create assignments down the ladder, you know, to get that done. But they're not listening to anybody who's on the front lines, usually. They're looking at it completely from a financial standpoint or a competitive standpoint. But there's not a lot of input into what that's going to be or how that's going to be accomplished. It's just handed down to the next level. And it just gets handed down, handed down, handed down until it hits the front lines and people are executing something they had nothing to do with as far as, you know, deciding that that's where the company should go. So the problem with that is that it becomes a game of telephone where, you know, somebody tells somebody to do something and who tells it to someone else. And by the time you get to the end, it's unrecognizable and usually watered down. So the end result, the output that comes from that strategic mandate is really ordinary. It's been just stepped on and averaged out and made really ordinary and safe, which kind of runs against the whole idea of strategy. Strategy is to create a bold move that makes a difference, right? That matters to the company. So the only way to get around that is not to do that. Don't do it in a linear way. Do it in a sort of all-at-once way. And that requires design thinking and requires 
sort of an agile methodology to do that. So that's what the book takes on. It's like bringing the things we designers have known for a long time up to the top of the company where the decisions are made. And that has two effects. One, it makes strategy better, but it also has a sort of trickle-down effect, if you will. If, if the leaders are using design thinking and agile strategy, they will expect the whole company to use it. So suddenly we're all in sync. So that, that's the basic idea. However, most leaders of companies today didn't get this class at Harvard. You know, they just didn't get, you know, they're curious about it. They're open to it, but they don't have any sense of like, what is this like to live through something like this all at once work? You know, it sounds chaotic and it is. So you could write a book about it and you could say, look, here are the steps you take and here's how you have to think about it. And here's, you know, 300 words on this topic. And here's some examples of some companies that have done it, blah, 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 the usual business book, but I don't think it would get it across. I have worked with leaders before, and they always say the same thing. I, I get the, the principles. I just don't know what it would be like to do this in my company. I have no sense of what I would have to go through. So that's what the book set out to solve. It's like, what's it like if you install methodologies like this in your company? What does it feel like? What are the things that can go wrong? And how do you deal with those? So a thriller, which is how this is constructed, is set up for things to go wrong. You know, I mean, that's how you construct a thriller. You have a, a big goal you want to pursue and things get in the way and they get worse and worse until you resolve them. So to me, that sounds a lot like real life. So you know, I, I think that's the appeal of the book. And a lot of leaders are going, wow, I had no idea. This is great. I get it. I get it. And it's actually pretty simple. So if you follow these simple principles, they yield you know myriad results, which is the way it should be. Principles should be simple. The model should be simple, but the results should be complex and full of design. Maybe you could give the audience just a quick overview of this framework because you talk about what it's not. So it's based on the design thinking framework, but tell us a little bit more about what's a quick overview of this framework. There are two sets of instructions, the five cues to the five questions of strategy and the five Ps, which are the five principles of design thinking that apply to this challenge. So it's the five Qs and the five Ps. The five questions, the five Qs are, what is our purpose? Who do we serve? Where should we compete? How will we win? And how will we grow? Um, so to get at those, it helps to have some principles. And so the five principles are problemizing, which means problem framing instead of only problem solving. Problem framing is much more important than problem solving. If you frame a problem correctly, it starts to solve itself. But if you don't, you keep running into roadblocks. So problemizing, pinballing, and that's where you let a lot of ideas loose to bounce off each other that create new ideas. So that means this sort of real-time brainstorming. And I'm not talking about normal brainstorming, the kind that fails, but structured brainstorming. Probing, which is where you test these ideas with the group. You test their validity conceptually. Prototyping, so you start making things to see if it works. Let's do some experiments. Let's create a, a small experiment, see if it works. Iterate from there, the usual stuff. And then finally, proofing. Let's make sure this works. Let's test it maybe off-Broadway. You know, So it's uh, being tested in a small way to make sure it works. So those are the five Ps that you can apply as needed to the five Qs. In the book, you know, I describe what all those entail. And at the back of the book, there's a guide to that. So you don't have to go looking through the story to find the actual principles. They're also reiterated at the end in a very simple way. These are new concepts, you know, especially the design thinking part for CEOs and other leaders. So it really helps them, I think, to see 
what it's really like. Even though it's a fictional story, it's probably more real than what you would get in most case studies in business books. Well, the design thinking principles might be new to some business leaders. Definitely, it's not taught in most MBA programs, although that's starting to change, which is great, but certainly isn't widespread. I want to ask you about your audience. You're giving a keynote at Interaction 19, which is a conference filled with designers and researchers, as well as devs and PMs and content strategists and writers, etc. So how does this agile strategy, which is based on a design thinking framework, how does it relate to people creating products and services? It's the same situation. I mean, if you're creating a product, if you're tasked with that, you have to have a design strategy. So it's the same principles, just move down a notch. You can use the same framework for anything in life as far as that goes. So it's it's really a matter of just, you know, what are your goals? Who's the audience for this device or software? You know, how do we win in the marketplace? And wh- where does it go from here? What does this lead to? What are the options that we're creating for the future? It's the same stuff. But I think it's more powerful when you put it in the framework of somebody at the top of a company, because if we can get more leaders of companies to embrace design thinking and, and agile, it's going to help everyone all the way down the line. So right now, there's a sort of a gap that exists between leaders, you know, and the makers within a company. So I'd like to erase that gap. I'd like to have everybody on the same page. And as it turns out, the book's been out for a while. It's uh, working very well, and I'm getting a lot of response from CEOs, and a lot of my talks are for CEOs. But the other thing is, in the book, it's not just about the CEO. The CEO is the main character, but the whole team is there. So I won't tell you what happens, but there's some digital stuff happening in a big way. There are marketing people, strategists, biz dev people, you know, the usual crew is all represented and they have to work together in real time to solve a problem that the company has. In fact, they only have five weeks to reimagine the company or else probably they're all out of a job. The company may be sold off in parts. And so that's the the pressure that they face in the story. Not unlike how we feel every day, right? As designers, every project is important. It's definitely an important piece of this is the collaborative approach. Let me ask a a little bit more about this. So it's a collaborative approach. It's also less linear, less top down. Tell me a, a little bit more about why it's important to have the doers or you say the makers involved in this process. Well, if they aren't, then what happens is they get instructions from the top that they can't actually use very well. And they end up trying to subvert them in some way or or just bend it around to something they, they understand that will work. And why not have that voice in the original discussion? So if you're a maker of some sort, a designer, a design thinker, and you're in the meeting, the original meeting, and someone says, our competitors just put out a new SUV and the thing is selling like crazy and our revenues are sagging, we got to do the same thing. Well, someone in design might say, well, wait a minute, what are we trying to achieve here? Are we just trying to you know, come in second or do we really just need to go back to the original problem, which is how do we create new revenues? Then that starts a whole different discussion. If you're not in that discussion, then you get the assignment to design a new SUV and that's it. That's your role. So you're downstream all the time. And the leader of the company is prevented from getting that information from that point of view. It's slow and it creates a sameness. Do you have any examples of teams that maybe have begun this process further down the line and suggestions for how a team maybe that's not at the top can actually 
get this process to be even considered by leadership? Oh, sure. Well, in my own career, I mean, this is how I learned about this stuff. I was a designer. I had a design firm, mostly graphic design. So one example is when I was working for Apple's software division called Claris back in the uh, 80s and 90s, they realized that their packaging, the retail packaging that they were selling the software in just wasn't as good as it could be. They were seeing other things out there. Some of it our company had done and saying, wow, that we're just really behind the curve here. I mean, this stuff's horrible. It was actually created by the Apple creative team inside the company, and they didn't know anything about how to do it. It was just the first time they'd done anything like that. I had a company that, that could come in and bring frameworks into Claris, and we brought in prototyping and testing. And we also brought in a methodology where we got everyone together at every meeting, including the top leaders, including the president, to look at prototypes and talk about where this could go. We made a rule that whatever we do, it's not going to be like what anybody else has done. That's just out. It's off the table. So that was the first thing we brought to them when they agreed to do that. And then we presented a lot of ideas and we did a lot of research, testing, all the things you do in design thinking. It ended up that through that process, the answer to that problem, how the software packaging should look and work, was way different than anything on the market up to that point. It was completely different, completely Apple. And it increased sales 40% across the board with no change to the 15 products they were selling. So that was a, a good test of this way of working right there. And to this day, I don't know too many graphic design firms that test their work. It happens more in, in digital than it does in graphic design. So I kind of lost interest in graphic design at that point and went into strategy where I was getting better opportunities to make a difference with companies. So it sounds like maybe... The advice here is for a team to find one way to use this process and show the validity of it if they're trying to get some attention or get their leadership to adopt this. Their stock will go up if they use this, because if they're not the ones deciding which project to work on, they can still demand to know what's our purpose, who do we serve, where are we going to compete, how much latitude do we have in deciding this? you know, frame it up right and get approval of that framework and then start applying the five principles and get the leaders involved at various stages. Because I know from experience, bitter experience, that if you come up with a great solution to any product design or any communication strategy on your own without approval at the top, it will be shot down, especially if it's good, because it'll be bold, different. They won't know how you arrived at the solution. It'll create change all of the things that maybe the leaders weren't prepared to do. So you need to get that support when you start the work and also during the phases of the work. And a lot of that comes down to just keeping leaders in the loop, right? So you're telling stories about it. You're explaining how you got to where you got and you explain it in a way that makes sense to a business mind, to somebody who's thinking about revenues and profits and organization, those kinds of things. So you, you need like an X-shaped person. <laughs> you know, you've heard I-shaped people and T-shaped people. T-shaped people, they have the stroke of the T, goes deep into a domain. They understand one thing very well, but they also understand things off to the sides of that so that they can collaborate well with other roles. But in that group, however big it is, five, six people, 100 people, it doesn't matter. You need an X-shaped person, the one who understands a lot of the different roles and is really good at telling stories about the work, selling it the whole way. So it's a great role for somebody when you understand it that way. This was developed by consulting teams. And in your book, there's consultants. I'm curious if you have any stories you could share with us of teams in the wild 
who have tried this approach on their own, maybe after reading your book or hearing the framework from you or your teams? It's too early to, to get any case studies from people who have read this book because it just came out a few months ago. But I have stories from companies who have just taken one of my books. One of them is called Zag. Zag was particularly effective this way. And the, the elements from Zag are in this book too. So everything in all my books comes out into this book. So it's all there to some degree. Well, UPS back... I don't know when this was, maybe late 90s, redid their whole approach, their whole brand, because they were changing. They were becoming a logistics company, not just a shipping company. And unbeknownst to me, they built the whole thing on my book, Zag, on the principles there. The centerpiece of which is one of the centerpieces in this book, too, which is onlyness. You know, our brand is the only blank that blanks. You can't answer that question really simply. You don't have a brand. You don't have a strategy. So that's what the UPS used. And then on a smaller scale for a, a smaller company, well, there's a company in the Czech Republic that I had never met who read a, a translation of Zag. And it was a finance company with several financial organizations, companies within the umbrella company. And they started a new company to basically reimagine what a retail bank is. They used a technique that I like to use with my, my clients, which is you make a list of all the known attributes of an industry, like what everybody believes about it already. What is a bank? You know, well, a bank is it's a retail office in a retail district. It's not out in the sticks or something. It's in a town. You walk in and there are teller windows. Uh, there's a lot of wood paneling. It's quiet. And you feel like you're, you know, you have to be on your best behavior. It's up to you to get in line and, and you, you, you wait your turn and you do your transactions. So they came along and said, well, what if we didn't do that? You know, <laughs> what if we did the opposite? And that's what they did, pretty much. They pretty much overturned every expectation about a bank. A lot of it's done online, not through tellers, but there is a place where you go and you can sit at a computer and people will come over to you, just like in an Apple store. They'll, they'll approach you and ask you how they can help. There's no wood paneling, might have a concrete floor and any kind of architecture, but very bare and modern with bright lime green and white stations, like workstations and things. And they'll bring you coffee and you're allowed to not wear shoes and you can bring your kids, <laughs> you can bring a dog. And it's completely a different feeling and it took off. It just took off and there's, I don't know, last time I checked, there were 40 branches and I'm sure it's growing since then. They used something very close to this, this technique. I want to talk a little bit more about this intersection in strategy between doers and managers. There's a large percentage of the audience of UX Cake, which are individual contributors. So often the doers or the makers especially designers and researchers, see themselves as unable to affect the larger strategy of a product or organization that their leaders aren't asking for these new frameworks. So you've been doing this a long time. So you have lots of fantastic advice. What would you tell someone who wants to be more strategic, but isn't being asked to participate? In product or business Yeah, strategy. they don't have a seat at the table. That simplifies management, so that's why they do it. It's like, I don't want a lot of people telling me what to do, so you guys just do your job and let me make the decisions. That's fine, but it's likely to fail unless you understand what the overall strategy of the company is and what they're trying to achieve with this project in a way that you, you really understand it. And if it's not leading to what I would call affordances, in other words, the ideas don't generate a lot of great ideas, original ideas, then you might have to push back and say, if we do this, we're going to end up in a very ordinary place. Can we make a few changes to this? What can we do to make this successful? 
because otherwise it'll either fail at the presentation stage and you'll you'll have to back down and do something really boring or it'll fail in the market which is worse and then you'll get that reputation for working on that failed launch of whatever it is so you really want to make sure you're successful i think you can get respect by asking for that just say look um i like to succeed so i need this information they need to know what latitude we have in creating a, a great product or a great service or whatever it is. When you do that, you, you may get rejected, but I think respect will go up because you ask the right questions. So I think that's where the book can also help. It gives you a sense of what leaders go through, like what's it like to be a leader? Because, you know, I'm not a leader. I'm a, I'm a designer or I'm an engineer or I'm a product manager. So how do I get into their heads? Well, here you go, because the book is written that way. So you can really see how ordinary leaders really are. <laughs> you know, I mean, they're, they're real people, right? <laughs> real problems and real inner lives. They're not hard to understand, but you're hard for them to understand. So that's the thing is how can you explain yourself, your value to anyone who's hiring you or who's managing you? That's a really, really good point. And I think very well put because it is something that has come up many times in conversations when I'm asking other leaders What's your advice for someone who wants to be more strategic? Almost always, everyone says something about talking in their language, empathizing with that leader so you understand what their needs are and you speak their language. That's absolutely true. It's so true. Uh, and so obvious. I forget to say that every time I do a podcast. <laughs> you really do have to speak the language of business. You have to translate between design language and strategic business language. And a lot of the concepts are the same with different words for them. And I think this is so important that I put out a dictionary on this called Brand A to Z. It's an ebook that is interactive. So when you go looking through definitions, you see how they all connect together. And so business and design terms are intermixed in this dictionary in a very simple, almost profound way. It's just so simple. So you can remember it, basically. So when someone says, we have to think about the revenue curve or whatever it is, you go, what's that? You, know, you look it up. Translate it into something you understand. So I think it's totally important. I worked as a designer for, I don't know, 30, 40 years before I realized I really had to almost be an MBA to make design work. Otherwise, I'm, you know, I'm designing things for my, my peers and not for the real audience or for the real company, the real world of business. And as uh, soon as I started doing that, everything opened up. And I went, oh, okay, I see where they're coming from oh my God, we're just so far from doing what they want to do, right? So, right. so you got to start thinking about revenues and profits and organizational structure. Right. The actual objective of the company. Yeah. Or the initiative or the project or whatever it is. There's actually goals that you're probably not getting that are so obvious to the people hiring you. But you're looking at it from a really good point of view, which is if I were a user, how would I regard this? How would I use it? How would I be safe using it? How, how's it going to change my life? All those things are great. And leaders don't have time to think that through. They can't do that, right? So they're thinking about a kind of higher level of managing all these parts by delegating. So you need to tell them what you need to know. And you also need to help them understand what you're doing because you've had the advantage of decades, maybe, of experience, you know, training. You've been working on this project maybe for a few weeks already, and so you're way ahead of them on that. You got to bring them along. You've got to like give them enough information that they see where you're coming from and see how that's going to connect with their goals. Absolutely, and I really love that you mentioned that 
this most recent book, Scramble, is maybe another way that someone who's not familiar with that world of business could have sort of a peek into it. It's it's a very accessible book. Yeah, that's the idea. So if I were only selling books to CEOs, I would have a very small, uh, you know, I'd be selling a thousand books or something. It's, it's not for CEOs. It's for everybody that ever works on a brand. And that includes anybody who works on a product. Those are all brand touch points that are super important. So you need to know where you fit, like where you can contribute in the whole scheme of things and the whole collaborative community. And if you can explain it, so much the better, because that puts you in a position of power to get it and be able to explain it to everybody who's working with you and everybody you're working for. Yeah, definitely. This has been super interesting. Before we go, first of all, I want to talk about the fact that this book, as you mentioned, it's not your typical business book, which is true. Like, even with a really great premise, <laughs> I'll get three pages through your your average business book and, you know, like, fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens? Then you put the book down and go, oh, I'll get back to this later. And it sits there, right, with the bookmark. There oh, my gosh. Three. Yeah. Uh, and then you feel guilty. Right. Because you bought a book you're not reading and you must be lazy. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, it's just a vicious, terrible circle. It is. And Scramble is definitely different. I can attest to that. Like you mentioned, it's set as a novel. You call it a business thriller. And so I'm very curious. You've written many books. Like you said, you've got elements from your books in this book. And I'm just very curious. Was Scramble harder or easier to write when you're approaching something to write it as a novel? The answer isn't really simple, just easier or harder. It required learning some things I didn't know about how to write a thriller. So I had to like give myself a course in thriller writing and suspense writing. So there are various resources for that, books you can read. I've been you know reading about writing itself for a long time, so I'm not totally unfamiliar with it. But I really had to learn the mechanics of it, where the emotional points are, what has to happen at what part of the book. I mean, it's not a formula. But you definitely you don't want it to be a formula. It has to be fresh. But certain things have to happen. And knowing what they are is like, all of a sudden you go, oh, okay, I get it. No, that's totally makes sense. So I had to learn that. But once I learned it, the writing itself seemed to flow faster because it's, you're writing about things you've seen in your life, people you've known and conversations you've had. And the characters kind of take over because the characters are set up to stand for some point of view, right, in the book. So there's maybe 10 characters. And they react in ways that you're familiar with. You know, so one of the characters, Steve, is the COO, and he's just a kind of get-it-done sort of guy. He's like, check the boxes, get it done, get your work done, be on time, be on budget. When he gets into areas of creativity, he's lost. He just has no idea where to start or why you would even want to do that. He just thinks it's all about putting your head down and pushing forward. And he is just naturally a devil's advocate. So everyone knows that character. And he pops up at times you just don't want that that kind of feedback. And it becomes a real problem for the team. So that's threaded through it. And I'm sure you can all relate to that. And then you've got one character who's a designer and she's like, she's brilliant. Just amazing at multiple kinds of ways of designing things. But she's not pushy. She's just quietly brilliant. So that's a different kind of character. You've got a marketing guy who has a moral streak, unlike most that you've met, but you've met people like that who are just, you know, ethics come first. And he's just always standing up for the right thing to do. So there's that. And there's people that just want to, you know, get out of the situation fast. And then they're all worried about their jobs. So all these kinds of things um, we can all relate to. 
And I just think you learn more and you learn more deeply in a story if you can manage to fit it in that way. So uh, that was the challenge. And I, I feel pretty good about how it turned out. Yeah, definitely. Those characters are relatable. And I think it's fascinating, but it's also really inspiring to hear someone like you, very accomplished author of many books and speaker and deciding that you want to challenge yourself with something new. And it sounds like a actually a fairly difficult challenge if you've never written a thriller and suddenly that's what you're going to do at a very large <laughs> scale. You have well, a large I, audience. So yeah, I, but I also have been writing my whole life you know, various things, copywriter in the beginning, advertising and design. And I was a design journalist for a long time. I'm not a stranger to writing because if, if I had to worry about grammar and clarity and <laughs> things like that, I think that would have been an overwhelming project. And I see people taking on those projects with that sort of skill set where they've never written a 300 page anything, right? And <laughs> to re write 300 pages of quality work is, you know, it's daunting. But if you've done that a few times, then you just have to worry about the structure. And it's not something that's difficult to understand if you know how to write already. So it's don't be so amazed. Is what I'm <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I still find it inspiring, regardless. So and I'm very grateful that you did that. Because now I can say, yes, I can read a full business book <laughs> from cover to cover. Well, you know, the, that's the whole thing is what's the best business book? The best business book is the one you finish. Uh -huh, exactly. And there's just so many. I have them myself stacked up by the bed there, half-read books that I really must read. You know, they're all must-reads. Yes. And I just don't want to read them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been so, so interesting. Before I let you go, I just have one last question. We are UX Cake, and we love cake. And we would like to know, what is your favorite kind of cake? Maybe ginger cake in the winter is good. Oh, that sounds delicious. Especially over like right now when it's cold and windy. Yeah, gingerbread. And, and little chunks of ginger in it, like little chunks of that sort of, you can buy it in little nuggets mm. just, just to come across every once in a while. Very nice. Oh, that sounds delicious. And fresh ginger only, of course. Of course. Well, again, thank you so much, Marty. I, I really appreciate your time today and your advice and your book. So thank you very much for joining us on UX Cake. Oh, thank you, Lee. I loved that Marty pointed out the importance of bringing the doers and makers upstream in the strategy process, and also the importance of involving the leaders in the process so your ideas don't get shot down. I highly recommend his book, Scramble, and I've included a handy link for you in the show notes page so you can just click that and start reading. If you enjoyed this episode of UX Cake, subscribe to it in your podcast player, share it with your colleagues. And if you appreciate this kind of content, please do leave us a rating and review in the iTunes or Apple podcast app. It really does help us. Connect with UX Cake on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or our website at uxcake.co. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a bite.